You're listening to Fence Posts, Foundations for the Christian Life. Fence Posts is a teaching ministry of Pastor Mike Woodruff of Christ Church Lake Forest. The Trinity. In the first study, we established the importance of knowing God and briefly explored how we should move in that direction. In this study, we give specific attention to the Trinity, one of the most profound and sublime mysteries of the faith. If we're going to know God, it must be as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But how does that work? In Lewis Carroll's classic tale, Alice in Wonderland, the Queen informs Alice that she should believe, quote, as many as six impossible things before breakfast, end of quote. Many who hear the Christian affirmation of a triune God believe that followers of Christ are taking the Queen's advice to heart. One down and five to go. Is this what's involved? Are we really expected to believe in something that seems impossible? How can God be one and three at the same time? No other major religion confesses a three-in-one deity. Muslims and Jews find it offensive. Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormons dismiss it as nonsense. Why do Christians pledge their allegiance to a triune God, especially when the word Trinity is never found in the Bible? And if it is true, why does it matter? What difference does this aspect of God's nature make in my life? These are the questions. We will take them one at a time. But before we begin, let me make three opening points to frame what follows. First, the triune nature of God lies at the foundation of the Christian faith. The Trinity is not an interesting math problem we're expected to solve or a quirky sidelight of God's being. It is the revelation of who he is and the superstructure upon which the entire gospel hangs. Those who ignore the Trinity, leaving it for trained theologians to contemplate while they think and act like Unitarians, along with those who undermine the Trinity by arguing that it's nonsense, will eventually discover that the entire Christian worldview crumbles. Two, The Trinity is a mystery, not an irrational idea. There's a difference between accepting truths you cannot fully comprehend and believing things you know are false. God's nature falls under the first category, not the second. Some people claim that the Trinity is an irrational idea. This is not true. It's simply a mystery. That is, it transcends the limits of the human mind. It would be irrational to believe that God is three persons and one person at the same time and in the same way, because that's a self-contradictory statement. But it's not irrational to state that God is one being in three persons. This is simply a mystery that lies outside our comprehension. Point three, our goal is to know God in spirit and truth. Any exploration of God's nature that leads to a deeper understanding is profitable, but the goal needs to remain clear. We are not studying to pass an exam. We are seeking to know God in spirit and in truth. His purpose in creating and redeeming us is to invite us into the sweet society of himself. Discussions about the Trinity that do not lead into that sweet and transforming society fail. The delight in knowing about God should lead immediately to delight in God. With these points in front of us, let's jump into a discussion that has been going on for over 2,000 years. Why Christians Believe in a Triune God So, why do Christians believe in the Trinity? More specifically, why would anyone suggest that God, who is one, exists in three persons? The answer is threefold. First is that the first disciples experienced God as triune. 
Those Christians alive in the days and weeks following Pentecost affirmed the Trinity both because this was what Christ taught and because this was their experience. God had revealed himself to them as Father, Son, and Spirit. Secondly, the early church understood God as triune in Scripture. The Christians alive after the formation of the New Testament affirmed the Trinity because this was the testimony of the Bible. Of course, they also experienced God in the same threefold way. But once the New Testament documents were in circulation, the followers of Christ chose to anchor their faith in God's written word. They proclaimed a triune God because that is who they read about on the pages of Scripture. Thirdly, the triune nature of God is formally affirmed in the church creeds. Today's followers of Christ affirm the Trinity not only because of the first two reasons, in other words, experience and Scripture, but also because it is the historic position of the church. Though tradition does not enjoy the same status as the Bible, the writings of those who have sought Christ in earlier generations, especially those that were affirmed by everyone everywhere, have tremendous weight. Whether we realize it or not, today's Christians embrace the Trinity in, in part because it was affirmed at a gathering in Nicaea in 325 A.D. Allow me to unpack points 2 and 3 in greater detail. The teaching of the book. I am contending that the primary reason the followers of Christ affirm the Trinity is because this is what is revealed on the pages of the Bible. For starters, it is the harmonization of the Old Testament affirmation that there is only one God, coupled with the New Testament confessions that Jesus is Lord and the Spirit is divine. There is only one God. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all proclaim that there is only one God. Therefore, monotheism is no longer new or novel. However, this was not the case during the time of the Old Testament. In fact, monotheism was the minority view during the entire 1,500 years the Bible was being written. During that era, polytheism was so rampant that the Jews' religious convictions were considered bizarre. What led the descendants of Abraham to limit their worship to one God? Why wouldn't they embrace the polytheism of their neighbors? The answer is simple. God had revealed himself to them as one God. What's more, he had clearly declared that there were no others. This central idea was at the heart of the Torah, the teaching of the prophets, and the music of the Psalms. I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. And just to make sure no one wandered from this truth, it was reinforced through the daily recitation of the Shema, the most basic Jewish creed, which reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. There can be little doubt that one of the central tenets of the Hebrew Bible is that though many people believe in false gods, only one real God exists. The new affirms the old. Followers of Christ are also students of the Old Testament. We accept everything that Judaism proclaims about God. In other words, he is holy, eternal, invisible, omnipotent, and omniscient. This includes the idea that he is one. In fact, the New Testament restates the oneness of God in several key places. In Mark 12, 29, Jesus repeats the Shema. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul dismisses an argument over food offered to idols on the grounds that there is no God but one. In his letter to the, to the Ephesians, he reiterates this view, stating that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. And in his first letter to Timothy, 
He offers praises to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. I could list other passages. Suffice it to say that the New Testament builds upon the theological treasure inherited from the Hebrews. No Orthodox Christian has ever challenged the understanding that there is only one God. However, Christians also affirm the full deity of both Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. One of the remarkable things about the New Testament is that while it agrees with the Old Testament affirmation that there is only one God, and indeed it refers to Him as Father, it also joyfully proclaims that both Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are fully God. In other words, while steadfastly affirming the oneness of God, the writers of the New Testament announce that He exists in three persons. Additionally, the Bible also directly affirms the triune nature of God. We see this in quiet ways in the Old Testament, where God is referred to in the plural and references are made to Father, Messiah, and Spirit. We also see it in a number of much stronger ways in the New Testament. The Trinity is on display at the baptism of Jesus. Just prior to the beginning of his public ministry, Christ walks into the Jordan River to be baptized by John. In that passage, we see the Son emerging from the water to the audible voice of the Father and to the visible sign of the Spirit. Secondly, Jesus said that he and his Father are one. When the disciples asked to see the Father, Jesus replied by saying that those who had seen him had already seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Indeed, it was statements like this that led to the religious leaders to accuse Christ of blasphemy. Three, Christ uses a Trinitarian formula in commissioning the disciples. In Matthew 28, Christ states, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here it is important to note not just that the Trinitarian formula is used, but also that the word name appears in the singular, not the plural case. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, the Trinity is implied in the design of our salvation. Writing to a group of new Christians who are about to be baptized, Peter explains that the children of God are those who have, quote, been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, end of quote. I could go on. Suffice it to say that once you start to look for evidence of the Trinity, you will find it deeply woven into the fabric of the Bible. Which leads me to restate my earlier claim. The reason the first Christians adopted a belief in the Trinity was because this was their experience. The reason the second wave of Christ followers, those who came after the formation of the New Testament, affirmed the Trinity includes their experience but is primarily based on what they found in the biblical text. Which leads us to ask, why do I believe in the Trinity? Why might you? Any thoughtful answer to this question must include the same two reasons I just listed, our experience with God and the teaching of Scripture. But whether we realize it or not, those of us living in the 21st century have 2,000 years of church history to consider as well. And during that time, many thoughtful and godly men and women have laid a path for us to follow. By studying what they wrote, which is itself based on Scripture, we can learn a lot. This is especially true of what they set down in the historic creeds that grew out of the great theological debates 
of the early centuries. In light of this, I'd like to review just a bit of the history of the church's first 500 years. The Teaching of the Church For a brief period of time, the followers of Christ were not troubled by God's mysterious nature. They simply joyfully proclaimed what they knew to be true. The Messiah had come. But that simple affirmation did not satisfy the needs of the young church for long. New converts needed to know exactly what they were signing up for. Growing followers of Christ wanted to know all they could about God. And those who were defending his triune nature needed acceptable ways to talk about him in greater detail. Various people accepted this challenge. Some, such as Irenaeus, a 2nd century bishop, and Tertullian, a 3rd century lawyer-turned-theologian, wrote helpful statements. But others made a confusing situation worse, and still others took advantage of the confusion to argue for ideas that fell outside the boundaries of Orthodox belief. By reviewing the efforts to articulate God's triune nature that were made by various teachers and theologians, both those that the Church has embraced and those that it has rejected, we can greatly expand our own understanding of God. The Early Efforts to Articulate the Trinity Those who made mistakes concerning the Trinity, either deliberately or otherwise, typically did so in one of two ways. They denied that God was really three distinct persons, or they denied that all three members of the Godhead shared one essence. Tertullian wrote against two who made the first mistake, Praxius and Sibelius. Though there, are different, though there are differences in the ideas these two men articulated, their views fall under the general heading of modalism, which denies that God exists in three persons. Modalists claim that just as an actor may play three different roles in a play, one God plays three different roles in biblical history. During the Old Testament, he manifested himself in the mode of the Father. Starting at the Incarnation, he ceased to exist as the Father and became the Son, and following the ascension of Christ, he ceased appearing as the Son in order to operate as the Holy Spirit. Modalism denies the Trinity by denying that God exists in three persons at the same time and by denying any real distinction between the persons of the Godhead. In his work Against Praxius, in which he argued that Praxius's emphasis on the unity of God caused him to blur the distinctions between the Father, Son, and Spirit, Tertullian not only became the first to use the term Trinitas, but his description of the Trinity of one divinity, in which there are tres persona una substantia, three persons and one substance, would prove remarkably similar to the definition of the Trinity adopted in the Nicene Creed 100 years later. In his writings against Sibelius, Tertullian argued that Sibelius's view had confused the roles of the Father and the Son to such an extent that he had the Father suffering on the cross, when this is clearly not what the Bible teaches. Tertullian was joined in this work by another church father named Origen, who also rebuffed Sibelius, insisting that there were genuine, ultimate, and personal distinctions between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, Origen went on to argue that there were degrees of divinity within the Godhead, and though the Father was perfectly divine, Jesus was slightly less so. In Origen's teaching, Jesus was 99.9% divine, but not 100%. This small compromise quickly led many to make the second type of mistake. That is to assume that the Father and Son did not share the same essence. This view occasionally called subordinationism, 
because the Son was less than the Father, led to the most serious challenge to the Trinity, Arianism. Indeed, most theologians and historians would call Arianism the most serious doctrinal challenge to face the church at any time. The Threat of Arianism Not long after Origen's death, a popular and cultured preacher from Libya named Arius, who lived between 256 and 336, burst on the scene in Alexandria in northern Egypt. Arius claimed that while Origen was right in suggesting that Jesus was less than the Father, he was wrong in suggesting that there can be degrees of divinity. To Arius' way of thinking, the question was simple. Either you are God or you're not, and Jesus was not. The fireworks began in earnest in 318 when Arius publicly accused Alexander, the soft-spoken bishop of Alexandria, of modalism. Alexander had been arguing that Origen was wrong to suggest that Jesus was less than 100% divine, but was unable, at least to Arius' satisfaction, to explain how the Father and the Son could both be God without falling into polytheism on the one hand or modalism on the other. Arius argued that only the Father was divine and that Jesus, while God-like and worthy of worship, was simply the first and greatest of all God's creations. He was neither omnipotent nor eternal. Arianism gained a quick foothold in Alexandria and began to spread throughout the eastern half of the Roman Empire. Much of the reason was Arius himself. He drew crowds with his charisma, made difficult concepts easy to grasp, and set his aberrant views to popular and easily remembered tunes. Before long, the church was facing a major crisis. Gregory of Nyssa, a 4th century church father who wrote about this period, said that discussions about the Trinity dominated the day. Quote, If you asked anyone in the city for change, he would discuss with you whether God the Son is begotten or unbegotten. If you asked about the quality of the bread, you would receive the answer that God the Father is greater, God the Son is less. If you suggested that a bath is desirable, you would be told that there was nothing before God the Son was created. End of quote. By 318, Arius was creating such a stir that the mild-mannered Alexander felt compelled to convene a special assembly of local bishops to help him deal with his popular rival. Arius attempted to disrupt this meeting by rallying a group of his own supporters. But once the bishops had a chance to fully understand what Arius was teaching, they overwhelmingly agreed that he was a heretic and excommunicated him from the church. This might have been the end of the story, but Arius did not give up. Instead, he quickly responded by organizing a letter-writing campaign to the bishops who had been unable to attend Alexander's summit, one that offered a very one-sided account of the issues at hand and confusing those who had not attended. Alexander responded with an open letter of his own, but it hardly ended the matter. In fact, the debates grew more strident and additional riots broke out. To the contemporary mind, One that seldom cares about or even understands theological precision, these debates sound silly. But they were not. What was being debated was nothing less than the future of the faith. Alexander understood that what people believe matters, and what people believe about God matters most of all. If error was allowed to creep in on the nature of Jesus Christ, then all would be lost. Indeed, indeed, the fight over the Trinity was actually a fight over the gospel itself. If Jesus was not, if he is not fully God and fully man, then he does not have the ability to die in our place. Alexander claimed that Jesus was God, 
Arius stated he was not. The battle lines were clear. Serving to make the controversy even larger was the political situation at the time. Not long before the Arian controversy reached its height, the Roman Empire under Constantine had reversed its stance towards Christianity, making it no longer illegal to follow Christ. In fact, Constantine believed himself to be a Christian. While this was welcome news, it made the church's theological quarrels a political issue. Convinced that religious unity was necessary to hold together his fragile empire, Constantine wanted the letter-writing campaigns and riots to stop. To that end, he summoned the bishops to his home in Nicaea to work out their differences. A gathering in Nicaea. In 325, 318 bishops showed up for the first and most important church council ever held. For many, it was a surreal event. For nearly 300 years, Christians had been persecuted by the state. Consequently, many of those who gathered in Nicaea did so bearing scars from their years of torture and imprisonment. Now they were guests of the emperor himself, attending an all-expense-paid council at his residence. Constantine, gilded in imperial robes and occupying the self-appointed position of bishop of the bishops, opened the ceremonies. He made it clear that he expected some type of unifying position to be reached and then turned matters over to others. Those in attendance quickly sorted themselves into three distinct groups. A few sided with Arius, a larger group which supported Alexander, and the majority who were hoping for a compromise. Those who agreed with Alexander argued that Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus was not created but was eternally begotten of the Father. In other words, He was not a son by virtue of adoption, as his followers are, but by his own nature. Those in the majority understood that Arius' views were inadequate and were willing to move towards Alexander's position, in other words, to require that Christians agree that the son is, quote, of like reality. The Greek word here is homoousian, with the father. However, they stopped short of agreeing that it was necessary to declare that the Son was, quote, of the same reality. The Greek word here is homoousian with the Father. For several days, it appeared as though the compromise position would carry, allowing Arius back into the church. However, as soon as Eusebius, Arius's representative, began to expound Arius's views, and the bishops finally understood exactly what Arius actually believed, the momentum shifted. In fact, shortly after Eusebius began explaining Arius's position, some of the bishops placed their hands over their ears and shouted, Stop the blasphemy! One even charged the dais, ripped Eusebius's notes out of his hand, and began stomping on them. The compromised party moved to Alexander's position, and Arius was denounced as a heretic by a vote of 308 to 2. With Arius's fate resolved, the bishops then set to work on the real challenge before them, explaining the Trinity in a way that would clarify the matter for theologians and laity alike. This, of course, proved to be a much more difficult task. However, some sort of statement was not only what Constantine expected, it was also what the church needed. After two months of effort, including a contentious debate over Eusebius's recommendation that they limit their creed to biblical terms, an idea they eventually rejected, they agreed on the following. Quote, 
We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of this Father, of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both which be in heaven and in earth, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered on the third day, he rose again and ascended into heaven, and he shall come again to judge both the quick and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Ghost, and whosoever shall say that there was a time when the Son of God was not, or that before he was begotten he was not, or that he was made of things that were not, or that he is of a different substance or essence from the Father, or that he is a creature, or subject to change or conversion, all that to say, the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes them. End of quote. This statement, which is called the Creed of Nicaea, and which should not be confused with the latter and much more popular Nicene Creed, was signed by all but two of the bishops. It thereby became a rejection of Arianism and a written affirmation of the early church's historic position. With their work done, the council promptly adjourned. The Nicene Creed I would like to be able to report that the battle ended there, but it did not. A second wave of Arius' followers, called the Semi-Arians, emerged and carried on the fight. This group moderated Arius' views and skillfully courted influence within the imperial court. Bishop Athanasius, Alexander's understudy and eventual successor, stepped into the gap. Persuaded that semi-Arian theology turned Jesus into a good example instead of a savior he claimed to be, Athanasius spent the next 50 years fighting this battle. Following behind him were the Cappadocian fathers, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory of Nazanessus. Indeed, it was these three who gave birth to what became the classic formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. God is one essence, but three centers of consciousness, or three independent realities. When the bishops gathered a second time in Constantinople in 381, they put the matter to rest. The modified creed they adopted, which is referred to as the Nicene Creed, went to even greater lengths to articulate an orthodox view of Christ's nature. Today, over 1,600 years later, this document remains one of the central affirmations for all Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Orthodox churches. It reads as follows. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death, and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Remind me why this matters. By this point, I suspect you're ready to stop hearing about ancient Greek and Latin documents and are a bit surprised by how closely the debates of the 4th century, with their riots, excommunications, and arguments over a single letter, resemble Chicago street politics. You might even be thinking that I made this harder than I needed to. Couldn't we just say that God is like water, which exists in three forms, solid, liquid, and gas, or like a three-leaf clover that's one clover with three parts? The short answer is no. These may be helpful, but all analogies fall short. Many have tried, but all are quick to concede that their efforts fail to capture the mystery of the Trinity. But the good news is that the heavy lifting is done. We've rehearsed as much of the Bible and church history as we need to, and are now able to consider why this is important and how we use this information to know God more intimately. So why is this important? An understanding of the Trinity is critical for your faith because this is who God is. If you're a 45-year-old married accountant named Brian, and I want to get to know you, it's helpful that I think about you as a 45-year-old accountant named Brian and not as a 15-year-old girl named Molly. God has made it clear that we should understand and embrace Him as He is. To that end, we need to think about Him as one God who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is not a small matter. Christians are Trinitarians, not Deists or Unitarians. We must seek to know God as He is in three persons. This is also important because the gospel hangs in the balance. Any effort to diminish God's nature by collapsing the three into one derails the entire gospel. Not only does it deny the teaching about our salvation found in Scripture, but it defies common sense. How could God remain morally perfect if he dismissed sin in order to forgive fallen humanity? Yet how could he remain loving if he did not offer to forgive? For a monopersonal God, compassion contradicts holiness. It's only with one God in three persons that God can remain perfectly holy and perfectly loving. Finally, this is important because the triunity of God indicates the value God places on community. God exists in community, and we were made in His image. That is, in the image of a perfectly relational being. Among the many things this must imply is that the individualism we strongly embrace must be tempered. We were created for community. God intends the divine trinity to be a model for human fellowship. So how do I get to know the triune God? How can the teaching of a deeper awareness of God's triune nature enhance your personal devotional time? What kind of things might you do or reflect upon in order to grow in your knowledge, love, and obedience to Him? Here are some possible next steps. Begin your day with the Trinitarian prayer. Christ taught His disciples to pray to the Father in the name of the Son, Paul later explained that as we pray, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. 
This means that prayer is a Trinitarian act, whether we realize it or not. So why not lean into this truth? I have found it occasionally helpful to direct my prayers to Christ or to the Holy Spirit or to all three. I address most of my prayers to the Father. However, I specifically thank Christ for the salvation He won and for His ongoing intercession on my behalf. In the same way, I offer praise and thanksgiving to the Spirit while asking for His comfort and strength and asking Him to point out areas of sin in my life. Additionally, I have profited by starting my day with a prayer the Anglican theologian John Stott recites each morning as his feet hit the floor. Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Lord Jesus, I worship you, Savior and Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, I worship you, sanctifier of the people of God. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity. Three persons in one God have mercy upon me. Amen. Meditate on His triune nature. Our minds are incapable of comprehending the mystery and magnitude of God, but our understanding of who He is should be constantly improving. This is especially critical for those who mistakenly think of God in a solely unitary way or who focus on one person of the Trinity to the exclusion of the others. Gregory of Nazianzus, a 4th century bishop of Constantinople, wrote, I cannot think of the one without immediately being surrounded by the radiance of the three, nor can I discern the three without at once being carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as a whole, and my vision is filled, and the greater part of what I conceive escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to others. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one luminary and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. How might we imitate Gregory? Consider reciting the Nicene or Athanasian creeds in your personal devotions, perhaps reading them at night before you retire or taping them to the mirror in your bathroom. Learn from the actions of each member of the Trinity. God is perfect in every way, and just a bit of reflection on the actions of the Trinity or on the interactions between the members of the Trinity are full of insight. Set aside ten minutes to reflect on the following. Consider the actions of the Father. Every parent intuitively knows that their own death is infinitely less troubling than the death of their child. And yet God's love was so great that he sent Christ to become our substitute. Have you thanked God recently for his sacrifice? Have you pondered how great his love must be? Or consider the obedience of the Son. As Christ clearly expresses in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was not his desire to suffer on the cross— but even though he was equal with the Father, he willingly obeyed, even to the point of death. What can you learn from his example? Or, reflect on the ministry of the Spirit. 
If you have made Christ your Lord, then God the Spirit, the silent member of the Godhead, lives within you. Have you considered what this means? Have you thought, have you sought to hear the still small voice of God? Are you working to allow the Holy Spirit to make you holy? Are you working to understand and apply the gifts he has given to you? Finally, reflect on the perfect love shown within the Trinity. As you read the New Testament, reflect on the ways the members of the Trinity relate to each other. This is possible because each person gives themselves to the others. What can you learn about how you should live in community with others from this, the most perfect and loving relationship possible? Let me end by reciting a prayer from A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. God of our fathers, enthroned in light, how rich, how musical is the tongue of England. Yet when we attempt to speak forth thy wonders, our words, how poor they seem, and our speech, how unmelodious. When we consider the fearful mystery of thy triune Godhead, we lay our hand upon our mouth. Before that burning bush, we ask not to understand, but only that we may fitly adore thee, one God in three persons. Amen. If there's any way we can help you on your spiritual journey, please contact us at cclf.org or email us at fenceposts at cclf.org.